Section 15 of Seven Roman Statesmen of the Later Republic by Charles Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 Crassus, Part 3. It is impossible, on the other hand, to believe with Professor Beasley that Catiline was a respectable politician and the avowed head of the Democratic Party at Rome during the years 65 to 63 BC if he had been beyond reproach sallust and other historians of the caesarian faction would have taken the opportunity to represent him as a martyr to the jealousy of the optimates and a victim of cicero's spiteful tongue since they did not dare to take this line and reproduce the orator's account of him almost verbatim we are driven to conclude that the insurgent chief was really a man of doubtful character and reckless designs but at the same time we are forced to believe from cicero's own evidence already quoted that he had not such a notoriously bad reputation as to make it impossible to use him as an associate or a tool in political schemes if we look upon him as no more than an unscrupulous demagogue of the same type as saturninus or clodius that is as a desperate brawler and mob leader rather than an anarchist it does not seem so unlikely that crassus and caesar may have had relations with him during the years of his activity if their plan was to have a bold and reckless democratic consul a man who would not shrink from using violence when the crisis came in power when pompey should return from the east we can well understand that they may have taken catiline into their pay he and they in short may well have been aiming at a coup d'etat though it is most improbable that they intended either to massacre the whole senate or to set the city on fire these accusations are the embroidery with which cicero adorned his orations when he wished to enlist all the men of material interests on the side of the optimates not only did he succeed at the moment for even the equites were seen with swords in their hands offering to kill caesar but he has left for all ages a stain on the name of catiline which is probably one or two shades deeper than that very unscrupulous politician really deserved the story of the catilinarian plots as we now have it is too fragmentary and too obscure to bear complete unravelling the version of the first plot in which caesar and catiline are said to have assembled a mob of assassins in order to murder the consuls of b c sixty five torquatus and cotta and then to have failed to give the signal for the onset is most unconvincing concerning the conspiracy of b c sixty three we have more details but they are very contradictory on the one hand we know that there was a widespread rumour that catiline was acting under the orders of crassus sallust no unfriendly witness allows that a great part of the senate suspected the great millionaire of being implicated in the plot on the other hand it is certain that crassus volunteered some information to cicero concerning the designs of the insurgents though that information was tardy and practically useless he is said to have come in a melodramatic manner late at night and muffled in a cloak and to have placed in the hands of cicero an anonymous letter which had been delivered to him warning him to be out of rome on the day of the preconcerted outbreak if this midnight visit really occurred it is probable that crassus was merely hedging that he told cicero what he considered would be enough to protect him from a charge of complicity if the plot should fail 
but not enough to do Catiline and his colleagues any harm if they were going to succeed. One thing is clear, that Cicero did not consider it prudent to assail Crassus and remain deaf to all the suggestions made to him with that object. Another public man, when incited to fall upon the millionaire, once answered with the proverb, Fainum habit in cornu, meaning that Crassus was too dangerous a sort of game for a hunter of his calibre to meddle with. Footnote. The Romans used to tie a wisp of straw to the horns of a dangerous bull, to warn the passer-by against him. End footnote. And so the consul of B.C. 63, with his usual prudence, refrained from accusing of high treason a man who could pull so many political strings and had at his disposal such a command of money and influence. When the informer Tarquinius, in his examination before the Senate, began to give evidence incriminating Crassus, a curious scene occurred. Dozens of senators who owed Crassus money began to shout, False witness! with all the power of their lungs. Then Cicero, after glancing round the house and pondering on the situation, took the easiest way out of the position by remanding Tarquinius to prison, without permitting him to go on with his story. The charge was not allowed to be repeated, yet Salus tells us that Crassus was so far from being grateful to Cicero that he ever afterwards regarded him as an enemy. Apparently he thought that the orator had been feeling the pulse of the Senate by producing such evidence and had only drawn back from an open attack because he saw that he would not get the full support of his party if he persisted. However much or however little Crassus had been implicated in the Catalinarian plot, this much is certain, that many people thought that he had known more about the business than he should, and that an additional stain was added in consequence to his already not unsmirched reputation. We are told that in the end of B.C. 63 he seriously thought of leaving Rome to preserve his personal safety, and provided ships to carry himself and his family and his treasure out of Italy. The reason why he did not actually depart was the unforeseen delay in the return of Pompey from the east. The conqueror of Mithridates had finished his military work in B.C. 63 by the conquest of Syria. He was expected back early in 62, just when Cicero's consulship had expired, and while the embers of the Catalinarian conspiracy were still smoldering after the main conflagration had been quenched. If he had presented himself at this moment, he would have found the democratic leaders in the deepest discredit and dismay, and foiled in all their plans to raise up a power in Italy that should be able to oppose him. But Pompey chose to linger in the east for the whole summer of B.C. 62, pacifying and portioning out provinces, and conciliating allied princes and founding new cities. He showed no signs of coming home, and merely sent ahead his foolish and talkative partisan, Metellus Nepos, the man whose pranks gave Cicero so much trouble. It will be remembered that his demands were so unreasonable, and at the same time so vague, that Cicero and the Optimates ventured to oppose them, and Crassus had time to recover from his panic and to reconsider his situation. There can be no doubt that the follies of Metellus who certainly exceeded the commission that had been given him, did his employer much harm and lessened his popularity. Yet when in the autumn of B.C. 62 Pompey at last announced that he was returning to Italy with his army at his back, both Democrats and Optimates were seriously alarmed. 
externally his position was so much like that of sulla in eighty two that both parties had a suspicion that he would be tempted to repeat sulla's role neither crassus and caesar on the one side nor catullus and cato on the other felt their heads quite safe upon their shoulders for each party knew that they had been intriguing against the great general in his absence and supposed that he might resent their action in a very drastic fashion nothing of the kind happened with rare civic virtue pompey dismissed his army and returned as a private person to rome expecting to receive from his fellow-citizens the praise and gratitude that he had so well earned instead he found the optimates captious and critical and the democrats far more concerned in the catilinarian conspiracy and its results than in the newly accomplished conquest of the east his simple and moderate requests the confirmation of his administrative work in asia and the provision of the rewards due to his victorious soldiery were refused him when he put forward his friend the tribune flavius to pass a plebiscitum for the grant of lands to the army of the east it was defeated by the unexpected and immoral combination of the optimates and the populares the great object of crassus at this time was to prevent at all costs the conclusion of an alliance between pompey and the senate lest the combination of the two should reduce himself and his party to entire impotence how he did it we learn from cicero's letters when pompey first returned to the city it would have been quite natural that he and the orator should have agreed to work together they had been old friends and allies in earlier days their political views were not dissimilar and if cicero was now the most moderate of optimates pompey was certainly the least democratic of democrats if the orator could have persuaded his friends to treat the great general with courtesy and ordinary consideration and to grant his very reasonable demands it is probable that matters would have settled down without any further trouble but cicero was still swelling over with pride at his successes in b c sixty three and now thought of himself quite as great a man as pompey his idea was to meet the proconsul with the phrase if you have saved the republic abroad i have saved it at home in his vanity he imagined that the crushing of catiline's handful of desperadoes was quite as great an achievement as the conquest of the east he was ready to assume an almost patronizing attitude to his old chief the wily crassus resolved to estrange the two by tempting cicero into a display of foolish pride which should disgust pompey he carried out his shameless plan at the first appearance of the great general to take his seat in the senate the occasion ought to have been utilized to welcome and compliment pompey according to his deserts but when the proceedings had been commenced crassus rose and began a fulsome and interminable harangue in praise of cicero's consulship not only was the subject matter stale for catiline had been put down a whole year before but crassus was the last man who should have launched out on such topics he was known to have resented bitterly all that the orator had done and to be his secret enemy however he began to declaim to the effect that the preservation of his own life and liberty his name and his fatherland his wife and children had all been the work of cicero that rome had been saved from fire and sword was due to this great man alone and so forth 
cicero fell into the trap with the greatest simplicity instead of suspecting all compliments from this most doubtful source he arose to continue the debate in his own self-laudation the opportunity for conciliating pompey by turning the discussion on his great deeds in the east and paying him his due meed of praise quite escaped him instead he proceeded to sound his own trumpet in the most autolatrous fashion writing to atticus in complete unconsciousness of his own folly he says that now was the time for my well-turned periods my flowers of rhetoric my antithesis and figures you know my wonted thunders this day they were so loud that i think that you must have heard them even where you are in epirus so having spoken at length of his own great doings of the majesty of the senate the wickedness of the late conspiracy and all his usual topics he sat down leaving pompey unblessed the general was not pleased intellexi hominem moeri says cicero who had the best chance of knowing for he was sitting next to him he took the speech as a formal declaration that cicero and his friends did not think much of his exertions in the east and he was not far wrong thus it came to pass that the shameless harangue of crassus and the idiotic vanity of cicero which made him gorge the bait so greedily began to destroy the chance that pompey might enter into an alliance with the optimate party and become a defender of the constitution his anger came to a head when at the instigation of his old enemy and rival lucullus the senate passed a decree that an elaborate inquiry should be made into all his doings in asia before they were ratified if anything was wanting to complete his discontent it was the way in which his army was treated the excuse made for denying its reward was that the treasury was empty a manifest lie for the enormous sums which had been paid in from his asiatic spoils were still unexpended so the man who might if he had been unscrupulous had become tyrant of rome found himself flouted and set at naught merely because he had behaved like a good citizen and refrained from taking by violence that which was his due he might have asked for anything that he liked while his army was still undisbanded when he had dispersed it cicero's stupid friends refused to listen to his pleas and left him shamed before the eyes of his veterans while he stood involved in this bitter disappointment pompey received the offer which changed the whole face of affairs crassus and caesar and the whole democratic party were still under a cloud with a strong suspicion of complicity in the catilinarian plot hanging about them it would mean everything to them if pompey his respectability and his veterans were placed on their side accordingly they offered him their assistance to secure the ratification of his asiatic treaties and the grant of land for his legionaries if he would join them against the senate it must have been a bitter moment for him when he was told that his desires might be gained at the price of a second alliance with his old enemy crassus the man who had intrigued against him with such malevolent persistence all through the last ten years but rather than break his word to his soldiers whose interests he had promised to protect and rather than endure more bullying from the senate he accepted the offer the famous first triumvirate was formed pompey contributed his great name his respectability and the potential aid of forty thousand veterans crassus his inexhaustible money-bags and his power of intrigue 
caesar his unrivalled talent for mob management and his cool and level brain at the moment most men thought him little more than the agent and tool of the two elder triumvirs the revelation of his greatness was yet to come when the triumvirate had been formed and in spite of the opposition of cato and a few more irreconcilables had shown that it could sweep the streets and clear the forum it remained to be seen how the victorious three would use their power the first thing that strikes the observer is that while pompey got something out of his bargain and caesar a great deal we can hardly trace any positive and tangible gain received by crassus from his alliance with his old enemy pompey got his asiatic doings confirmed he was also enabled to give his veterans the land that he had promised them caesar obtained his consulship passed all the laws that he chose to bring forward and had the pleasure which to a man with his sense of humour might have been considerable of seeing his colleague bibulus shut up in his mansion and inspecting the heavens day by day without any effect moreover at the end of his year of office caesar received the all-important provinces of cisalpine and transalpine gaul the district from which legions could best overawe rome and all italy but crassus got neither consulship nor province neither land nor ratified treaties it is true that his position in politics was re-established the slur that had been left upon him after the catilinarian business was removed and he could feel that he had pulled the strings of the whole intrigue but of more definite profit we see nothing the only satisfactory explanation of this curious fact is to remember that crassus all through his career seems to have desired power as an end in itself rather than as a means to other objects he was to use a modern phrase a man without a programme he wanted to pull the wires of politics rather than to carry out some definite policy when he had collected all the wires in his hand if we seek a modern parallel for him we may think of that wonderful old whig the duke of newcastle who allied himself with the elder pitt on the terms that the latter should manage the whole imperial policy of britain while he himself should be permitted to conduct the parliamentary jobbery and intrigue in short when the opportunity came to him crassus had no particular set of measures that he wished to advocate he was neither a true democrat nor a true oligarch he had become the leader of the populares not because he had popular sympathies but because he wanted at all costs to be the leader of some party so the weakness of his position was that having achieved his wish to obtain a share of supreme power he had little that was definite to ask for he merely wanted to be able to assert himself when he chose to have his share in portioning out consulships and praetorships to make money when and how he chose and to use it by keeping dozens of minor political persons in dependence on him hence it is that in the doings of the triumvirs during their day of power it is hard to point out very much that can be ascribed to the personal initiative of crassus his main aim was to keep in check his ally pompey whom he hated no less than of old that thereby he was helping a much more able man caesar on the road to supreme power he certainly did not realize we may make a shrewd guess also that it was crassus who really set upon cicero and drove him into exile clodius being merely his tool and not the originator of the orator's woes we know from sallust and plutarch how bitter was the enmity that crassus bore to the consul of b c sixty three despite the flattery which he lavished on him when he was set on estranging him from pompey
it was probable that the banishment of cicero was his underhand revenge for seeing his old schemes frustrated for both in the rejection of the law of rulus and in the suppression of catiline the orator had been the main cause of his defeat on the other hand it is hard to see that clodius had really any adequate cause for the malignant persecution to which he subjected cicero the usual tale that he had been angered by the way in which his ingenious alibi had been disproved while he was being tried for the violation of the mysteries of the bonadia does not seem to give a sufficient reason for his vindictive attacks on cicero if we imagine that he was spurred on by crassus the causes of whose enmity are so much more obvious the matter becomes far more intelligible if the triumvir simply delivered the blow at second hand it is quite in keeping with what we read concerning his feelings at the time plutarch tells us that he had conceived such a mortal hatred for the orator that he would have shown it by some act of personal violence had he not been dissuaded by his son publius who chanced to be an old pupil and an admirer of cicero crassus was certainly closely connected with clodius whose acquittal at his trial for the violation of the mysteries he had secured by his lavish bribery he was the only one of the triumvirs who did not try to save cicero from the worst extreme of exile by pressing on him an honourable excuse for absence from rome in the shape of a legateship or a free commission to travel that the orator himself suspected him of being at the bottom of his troubles may be judged from the fact that when writing from thessalonica during his banishment and estimating his chances of return he speaks of pompey as certain to be favourable crassus tamen metuo he had a fear that crassus might not prove so accommodating however having learnt the lesson that it was not wise to cross the triumvirs cicero was ultimately allowed to return and soon after was formally reconciled to the millionaire by means of the young publius his faithful friend End of section fifteen